The rule of St. Benedict is 1,500 years old and one of the greatest spiritual handbooks of all time. It's foundational to our life and community here at Richmond Hill. Our simple rule is patterned after it. Scripture quotations dominate the rule of Benedict, so much so that after a while you get the feeling that it's nothing more than a long chain of Bible verses linked as one. And the very first verse cited in Benedict's rule is from our text for today. It is high time for us to arise from sleep. Benedict, echoing Paul, wants us to wake up, to be alert and to pay attention. It's urgent, they both say. Life is passing us by. Now is the time for us to live for Christ. Joan Chittister, a Benedictine sister and renowned author and speaker, writes that we put off so much in life, visiting relatives, writing letters, going back to school, finding a new job. But one thing stays with us always, present whether pursued or not, and that is the call to the center of ourselves where the God we are seeking is seeking us. St. Benedict, like St. Paul, is saying, listen today, start now, begin immediately to direct your life to that small, clear voice within. Benedict reminds us, Chittiter goes on to say, that life is short, that we don't have time to waste time, that some things are significant in life and some things are not. We all have to ask ourselves what time it is in our own lives. We each have to begin to consider the eternal weight of what we are spending life doing. We have to start someday to wonder if we have spent our lives on gold or dross. In our text for today, the Apostle Paul is telling us what matters most, what should take priority, and that's love. The text mirrors in some ways what we find in 1 Corinthians 13, also written by Paul. It's one of the most well-known passages in all of the Bible, often read at weddings, but written with a conflicted community in mind. Paul reminds them and us that when all is said and done, three things are important, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, now anyone who knows anything about the rest of Paul's writing might expect him to say faith. Everywhere else he seems to drive home that point. But here we see an evolved Paul, one who has grown in his understanding. He acknowledges that there is something greater even than faith and that something is love. But love is more than just a feeling or an emotion for Paul. It's anything but sentimental. Paul is not simply saying that we have to feel love for everything that is, though that's not a bad suggestion. Nor is he saying that we have to love everyone. He is being more specific than that here. He says we are to love our neighbor, we are to love the one or ones closest to us, those in our proximity. Paul is concerned that we love those with whom we come in contact with every day. He expects his listeners to embark on the difficult task of sharing real love for real people, the ones we meet every day in our real lives. He's not concerned with theoretical love for everyone or everything. His call is to something more specific and tangible, something more demanding. Also, the love he calls us to is predicated on something else of great importance. 
that we love ourselves too. Only a healthy whole person, one who is capable of loving herself or himself, is capable of loving another. To put it another way, our inability to love another is often the result of our inability to love and care for ourselves. That which we despise in someone else is often the very thing that we haven't learned to accept about ourselves. Love of the other begins with our being willing to accept ourselves, to forgive ourselves, and to be graceful with ourselves. Once we're able to do that, we can love in return. Love of the other is rooted in self-love that makes it possible for us to acknowledge and enjoy the handiwork of God in every creature. Paul is telling us that the time for such awareness and love is right now. He is saying, wake up. This is a critical moment. The pandemic that we find ourselves in has been a wake-up call for the world. It's also a reminder that life is short and that we are all vulnerable, though some are more vulnerable than others to COVID-19. This new disease accentuates the disparities between us. While many of us can socially isolate, many don't have that luxury. Many can't afford to work remotely. And those that must venture out to work continue to run a higher risk of getting infected and bringing the virus home to their families, which are already more likely to be sick and less able to navigate the complex healthcare mazes they are already suspect of. The coronavirus is running fastest through neighborhoods that are cramped, stressful, and bleak. Statistics in the Sunday Richmond paper specified that 78% of those sick in this city, in our neighborhood, are Black and Latinx. And those same communities make up 87% of those hospitalized in Richmond for COVID. Something is tragically wrong, right? We know that regardless of the color of our skin, we are all God's children and valuable in God's eyes. Yet the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on people of color and the violence that we continue to see perpetuated by police against black and brown bodies belies our full acceptance of that truth. Racism is alive and well. And we must come to terms with that stark reality if we're going to love neighbor as self. Those of us who identify as white have necessary work to do. For us to love neighbor as self the way that Paul and Benedict and Jesus intended, we've got to take a long, hard look at ourselves and the ways in which we have been and are complicit in systems that favor us over others. The urgency of this very moment in history demands it. Paul's words are for us. It is high time to arise from sleep. Debbie Irving, in her book, Waking Up White, shares her own story of awakening to the injustices of race and racism. She writes that her own waking up process was largely made possible by finally paying attention to the collective wisdom of people of color throughout the centuries who risked their lives, their jobs, and their reputations to convey their experience of racism. That wisdom, she says, led her to the conclusion that there is no greater misstep in American history than the invention and perpetuation of white superiority. 
Racism, she writes, crushes spirits, incites divisiveness, and justifies the estrangement of entire groups of individuals who, like all humans, come into the world full of goodness with a desire to connect and with a boundless capacity to learn and to grow. No one alive today created this mess, she writes, but everyone alive today has the power to work on undoing it. 400 years since its inception, American racism is all twisted up in our cultural fabric. But there is a loophole. People are not born racist, she points out. Racism is taught and racism is learned. Understanding why and how our beliefs developed along racial lines holds the promise of healing, liberation, and the unleashing of America's vast human potential. It's high time that more of us woke up to that truth. The optimism that faith, hope, and love provide suggests that momentum has shifted in the direction of positive change, though the forces opposing it remain strong. Still, we mustn't miss this opportunity. The arc of the moral universe is indeed long, but today we can nearly see it bending toward justice. We need to help it along. The time is now. God is calling us to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's that simple and it's that hard. And as Paul points out, it begins with you and it begins with me. Salvation is nearer now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. So let us lay selfishness aside and begin to care for one another in ways that show that faith is real, that hope is alive, and that love is the way. The healing we seek and so desperately need begins right here and right now. Wake up, it's time.